Pastor Ed Taylor says, seeing follows believing. You, you can't come to God and say, you know, I don't really believe in you, God. I'm not really interested, and, and I'll believe it when I see it. Or, or except you come to God and go, you prove it to me, God. You prove it to me, and then maybe I'll believe. That, that's not how God operates. God operates this way. It's not, I'll believe it when I see it. God operates this way. Believe, and you'll see it. Seeing comes from faith. It doesn't precede faith. And God is ready to show you great and wonderful things right now in your life. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Imagine being blind from birth, never able to see your loved ones or see the sunrise and set or anything else for that matter. Then in an instant, you receive your sight. The feeling that would accompany that experience would be hard to put into words. Today on Abounding Grace, we will be introduced to a blind man who experienced the healing touch of the master's hand. Pastor Ed Taylor offers several observations concerning this great miracle of God. John's Gospel, chapter 9, is where we are. We finished, finally, last time, the 8th chapter, and now we're moving into chapter 9, where we're introduced to this true story of a blind man being given his sight. A very miraculous event takes place as a man born from birth, blind, is touched by the Lord. He believes And therefore, he's healed. It's an amazing story. We read it because we read through the Bible so quickly, we miss the significance and prayerfully we'll draw some of the significance out of what we learn through this episode in Jesus' life. You know, we've been raised with the idea, and it may even be in your mind right now, we've been raised with the the perspective of, well, almost like a, a skepticism toward things. And that skepticism is sometimes uh, expressed by, I'll believe it when I see it. That, that's, you may not say that, but maybe you think that. You present it with something that's too good to be true or something that you're thinking about and you're not quite sure and, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. And, and I don't think it's all that unhealthy. I, I think that there is room for a little bit of caution. There's room in our lives for a little bit of skepticism, if you will, where, you know, maybe it is too good to be true and you want to be careful not to be gullible and be taken advantage of. But I want you to know that this idea of I'll believe it when I see it is not the way of God. It's actually the exact opposite of the ways of God. He isn't challenged that way. You, you can't come to God and say, you know, I don't really believe in you, God. I'm not really interested, and, and I'll believe it when I see it. Or, or except you come to God and go, you prove it to me, God. You prove it to me, and then maybe I'll believe. That, that's not how God operates. God operates this way. It's not, I'll believe it when I see it. God operates this way. Believe, and you'll see it. Seeing comes from faith. It doesn't precede faith. 
And God is ready to show you great and wonderful things right now in your life. Even as this man had no idea the life-changing encounter he was about to have with the living Savior, he had no idea. And even as he go along in the, the relationship here in the episode, he has no idea what's happening. And so pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 9. He says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now that's what he saw. He saw a man that was blind from birth. And, and we know of the rest of the, the, the rest of the scriptures here that he saw a man that was blind from birth that was going to be healed. But his disciples saw something different in verse 2. His disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. So his disciples, they saw a blind man, and it provoked in them a question about the origin of his blindness. You know, what happened to this guy? Who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? Jesus, however, saw a blind man that needed to be healed. And I, point, I draw that out because you and I don't always see things the way God sees things. And we really need to pray for eyes to see things the way God sees things. To not just be shaped by our culture. To not just be shaped by our upbringing. To not just be shaped, but, but to truly see things the way God sees things. Now, their question's an interesting one because it speaks to sort of the belief of the day. I don't know that so much you and I would ask that question because culturally, things aren't like that today. But in the time of Jesus, there, were a, there are a couple options we can throw out to what they're referring to. First of all, there were many in Jesus' day that believed in something known as prenatal sin. And this is the idea that a baby could sin in the womb, and because of that sin, pay the consequences of their sin in the womb the rest of their lives. And, and that was a superstitious belief of the day. Another option and unfortunately, this second option, the first one's not really with us anymore, but the second one actually still is with us, unfortunately, and that is that many in that day believed that sickness and suffering was always connected to sin, directly, not just indirectly. Because, you know, we have a very large segment of the church today, and perhaps you are connected with one or have come from one or even having your ears tickled by some that say that, Sickness in your life is because you don't have enough faith and you have done something wrong. And if you would just have more faith and you would just get your act together, you wouldn't be sick like me. That's what the pastors say. The pastors will say, sin and sickness comes because you, you need more faith and you're faithless. And, and then there's a whole variety of misrepresentations of God and ripping people off for money that say, you know, here's how you, you can get my faith if you plant a seed in my ministry and all that kind of stuff that simply is not biblical. It's not the heart of God. It's not true. It, it's, it's a lie. It's just a lie. Isn't it trip you out? Because you'll watch on TV. Maybe you see them on TV. They'll look right into the camera and say, you're sick because you need more faith. And if you just had more faith, you'd be well like me. Now, I'm just a, I'm just a guy that sees what I see. And, and it, it always is an interesting thing that the guy pointing into the camera and telling me that I don't have enough faith and that I'm sick because of my sin, he's wearing glasses. <laughs> have you ever noticed? He's wearing glasses. What does that mean? His eyes are pretty sick. Because if he had enough faith, he wouldn't need... Did anybody else see that or is it just me? 
You know, and then, well, now then when we start, when that gets started pointing out, now they start putting contacts on, and it just is, a, is speaking to the fact that all of our bodies are wearing down. The outward man, the Bible says, is what? Perishing. But the inward man is being renewed day by day. There was that belief that this blind man was, he, he, it's because of his, now there's a, an attachment to that as well. It's not just your own personal sin, but also there is an attachment of something that also is with us today that is equally untrue, and that's this false thought of generational curses. Generational curses. And here's, what that, here's the thinking behind that. Your, your dad uh, did something, your parents did something really, really bad. And, and actually your grandparents before them were, lived a life of really deep wickedness. And, and also your great I mean, you start looking at your family tree and you just find out that there are people in your life that, that really weren't living for the Lord. As some of you here listening right now, you're the first ones in your family tree that are born again. You're the first ones that God has apprehended your heart and things are being changed. But then you start hearing in the Christian circles today about generational curses and you you're thinking, oh man, I must be stuck. I'm going to have to pay for the sins of my family for the rest of my life. That God is actually going to do that to me. That God is going to punish me for the family tree that I've come from. You know that's not true, right? It's not true. Let me show you something. Turn over to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. This is one of the verses they're going to throw out to you and say, well, here, here it is. Generational curses God, from the lips of God himself. Exodus chapter 34. Pick up with me in verse 5. Exodus 34, 5. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, by no means clearing the guilty, notice, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God is revealing himself. He's revealing himself and his name. This is his name. You'll notice in the New King James, the name there is Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Whenever those are all in capital letters, it's pointing back to the name of God, which is really unpronounceable. It has no vowels to it. But, but we have added vowels. You, you might see it as Jehovah or even as Yahweh, as a way to represent, and you can just put in quotes, the name. And notice what his name is. His name is reflective of his character. God's name means that he is merciful and he's gracious and he's patient, long-suffering with us. He abounds in goodness. He abounds in truth. He keeps mercy for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But then there's verse, 30, there's verse 7. And you go, wait a minute. Verse 7 is pretty troubling. And, and I think in, in many respects it should be troubling. He says that he is going to visit the iniquity Let me get back there with you. He says he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And many have twisted this into another manipulative false teaching to somehow share with you that you are under a generational curse. And and entire books and and ministries have been built on this nonsense. And I, I don't use the word nonsense lightly. Like, we're in the last days. I do not want you believing in false teaching. 
This is not, God is not saying that you, when you came, you've come from a bad background and your dad really did. Your dad was perhaps not honorable or your grandfather or your great-grandfather and that the reason your great-grandfather wasn't honorable because your great-great-grandfather and the reason was your dad and, and you go on and you're like, man, I'm just stuck. I'm just stuck because of the sin in my family. It's not true that there are generational curses. It's not true that you're bound by the sins of your father or your mother or your grandfather or your grandmother. The Bible does clearly teach that the sins of the parents can be visited upon their kids, but not in a curse. You go, Ed, what do you mean? Well, let's think about it. We generally are products of our upbringing in a general sense. And so if, you're, if your family was into stuff that they shouldn't have been into stuff, and you lived in that home, there's a very good chance that you're going to get into stuff that you shouldn't be in because that's the kind of home that you were raised in. And so in a very real way, there are things passed down from parents to children, not as a curse, like you don't have any choice, but out of habit, out of decision, out of example. I was talking to a single mom last night who lost her husband a couple years ago here in our fellowship. And I was talking to her about the transition in her life and things going on in her life right now. And and one of the topics that we talked about was the example that she is giving to her children. And really, you only have two choices in our example. There aren't three, they're not five, they're not ten. We are either good examples (laughs) or bad examples. But we are examples. And so in that case, it's easy to have things passed down. You know, for example, alcohol. When alcohol is in the house, there, I don't know what the statistics are, but the statistics, the number is very, very high that if the parents are drinking, the kids are going to start drinking. It's very high, especially if alcohol is in the house. There are high statistics that if the parents are smoking, the kids are probably going to start smoking, and they're probably going to start smoking your smokes because they're in the house. They're probably going to start drinking your alcohol because it's in your house. And then you go, well, well, and then they get up to the place where they're just sold out to alcohol and drugs and they've submitted. And they go, well, you know, it's my parents' fault. No, in, in a small way it might be, but it really, it's not a curse upon you. Well, it's just the way my dad was. That, that's not the way it is. This man isn't blind back in John 9 because of the sins of his parents, because of some generational curse. Jot these down, would you? You can use these verses as a as a reference, you know, in John 9. Also, you can go to Exodus 34. Jot these down. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Very clear. You're not going to pay for the sins of someone else. Like the penalty of the sins of your fathers are not going to be something for you to pay. Your, our fathers pay for them. Or Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. There's personal ownership in our lives. We can't blame previous generations for the decisions we're making today. And, and I'm also thinking, I'm thankful that Jesus Christ breaks that cycle of sin. If you are born again today, no matter what your background is, that is all done with you. It's over. You are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Everything changes when a person is born again. And you may just find that in your life, you start have the opportunity now to go backwards in the generations before you and start ministering to your dad and your granddad and your grandma and those that are in your life, that you, now you become a light in your family. Are you happy that the cycle of sin has been broken in your life? I mean, yeah, I look at my own life. Now, while I came from a, a very moral family, we're in a very religious family, uh, and I'm thankful that all the morals they put into, my, into me, but, but then I became a dad and a husband and just sold out to sin. And, and that would have been what I handed down to my son, Eddie. That would have been what I handed down to my son, Josh, and to my daughter. That would have been what I did, unless God intervened, and God can intervene and change everything. He has broken the cycle of sin. He has taken the curse upon himself. So that in exchange by faith, you can be set free today. No such thing as generational curses. This guy's blind because he's blind. He was born that way. He was born that way. Here's Jesus' answer in verse 3. Well, what is it, Jesus? This or this? And Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That's the answer. The answer is for the disciples is simply just the word, neither. What a mistake we make when we leave God with just two choices, with dilemmas in our lives. <laughs> you remember the, uh, the early church when they lost the apostle, when Judas committed suicide, they immediately, Peter put some scriptures together and said, you know what, I, I think we need to choose another apostle. We have to choose another apostle. This is what the scriptures say. And they cast lots and, and they chose another apostle. And, and they put it before God, either choose this one or this one. Now, I happen to believe that the answer from heaven, if they would have listened carefully, would have been neither. Because God had something behind the scenes that he was going to choose. You know, there was never an example in the scriptures of man ever choosing an apostle. For example, Jesus didn't choose Matthew and say, Matthew, you choose the rest. Only God chose apostles, not men. Only God chose apostles. And so we know that and I believe that the, the final apostle replacing Judas was not the choice that we find in chapter 1, but rather there was this guy named, well, at the time of the first, right, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, there was this guy running around against the church. Remember his name? Saul of Tarsus. He was a murderer. God had a choice that wasn't on anybody's radar. And I think we make a great mistake ourselves when we are coming to God in our prayer life and our difficulties and we say, okay, God, here's the problem. And I've been gracious enough to come up with two solutions, God. <laughs> one I really like and one I don't like so much. So I'm going to give you the one. I'm going to give you the good news first, God. Pick A. You've got to pick A because I think A is it. And, and, you know, if A doesn't work, I'd be okay with B. And can't you hear heaven sometimes say to you, neither. I'm going to do something in this situation that you can't even think of that you don't even have a solution about. You don't even know about Saul of Tarsus. As a matter of fact, when you think of Saul of Tarsus, you want to wipe him out. When I think of Saul of Tarsus, I see him changing the world. And here they are. They only give him two choices. And Jesus very graciously says, it's not neither one of your choices, but instead he's blind because God's going to show himself strong in his life. God is going to be revealed in his life. We don't need to help God out by trying to figure out solutions to the problems in our lives. We don't need to help God out by trying to accomplish things in our own flesh without God clearly leading us by his spirit. I can't help but think of Abraham and Sarah thinking, you know, hey, I'll help God out. This is our choice. We either continue to wait or we got Hagar here. 
And uh, either, you know, we don't know how it's all going to work. And so they chose for themselves, instead of waiting for God to do the work, God doesn't need our help, but he requires our submission. God doesn't need our help, but he requires our submission. And I like that answer. It's neither. It's neither. So with this man's sin, we have the questions, well, why? And what happened? And Jesus is saying to us that the sickness is not the result of this man's personal sin, nor the result of his parents' personal sin. But in spite of this handicap, I'm going to intervene, he says. God is going to intervene and do something so that God will be glorified. This man was born blind so that at this time, God would be able to show himself strong through his life. I couldn't help, as I was thinking through this, I couldn't help of our own dear sister here uh, in Calvary. Uh, Many of you know her from the radio. Her name is Bianca, who also was born blind, pretty close to birth. She's been blind. She comes on Wednesday nights and sits right up here up front, and she calls Calvary Live every single show. She has God working in her life. And we, you know, I've talked to her about her blindness before. I've talked to her about the reality. It's very hard for her. It's very difficult. Even if with this man, growing up with this handicap, it's very hard and it's very difficult. And it's taken her years in her life to really come to the place where she recognizes that God is using her blindness to bring him glory. She's blind and one day will see. And all along the way, God is using that handicap in her life for his glory. So that, as he says here, the works of God should be revealed in him. You have to think of that in your own life when you start asking the questions of difficulty in our life. Why now, Lord? And why me? And why this? Of all the answers that can, that can come, one of the answers is simply this, that the works of God will be revealed in your life. That the works of God will be revealed in your life. Sometimes God will remove the problem. And we're very grateful for that, aren't we? I mean, that's the option we wanted all along. God, remove this. At other times, God will allow us to live with the problem the rest of our lives. He will choose to be glorified by leaving the disability, by leaving the difficulty in our lives. Hey, thanks for listening to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We're going through the Gospel of John right now, and you can hear this message again online at AboundingGraceRadio.com or listen through our app. Search for Ed Taylor in the App Store or Google Play. And we're also on OnePlace.com and have a podcast, too. Well, Pastor Ed, we just turned the calendar and entered the month of July today. And with that, we have a new resource to talk about. It's a book by Erwin Lutzer designed to help us break a stubborn habit. What can you tell us about it? Well, this is a book we've used around here at Calvary for many years. I think it was previously published, Getting to Know, N-O, the idea of living out a life of freedom, you know, consistent with our study through the Gospel of John. And you know, when the decision to change is not enough, uh, Irwin says, you've prayed, you've surrendered your sin to God, you've been more zealous reading the Bible, attending church, but what do you do when you still can't shake your bad habits? And so after discouragement and defeat set in, you need a dose of genuine hope and some biblical time-tested guidance on breaking free for good. And so Dr. Lutzer shows us the three essential ground rules you need to accept in order to change, the secret to to dismissing tempting thoughts, 
I mean, really, that key of taking every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and then he teaches us. He's such a phenomenal Bible teacher and and even a better author. Uh, He talks about the roles of God, Satan, and our loved ones along the path of success or failure. This is an essential resource helping you live the life of victory, the life of freedom, the life beyond stubborn fleshly habits to surrender and go for it in Christ. Be sure to pick it up here, supporting the ministry or wherever you get books. Request a copy of How to Break a Stubborn Habit when you call 877-30-GRACE. That number again, 877-30-GRACE. You can also order online at calvaryco.store. Abounding Grace is made possible through the generous support of our listeners. And as we deliver God's Word one verse at a time, we're looking to our listeners for help. Together, we can reach people with the love and truth of Christ and make a difference in these last days. To make a secure donation, drop by AboundingGraceRadio.com or call us at 877-30-GRACE. Well, next time on Abounding Grace, we'll continue Pastor Ed Taylor's study of John. Thank you for listening today, and we'll look for you tomorrow as we open the Word together in search of God's abounding grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.